Good morning. Today's reading is from Philippians 1, 27 to 2, 4. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Is that better? All right, you can hear me. Can you hear me now? All right, let's. <laughs> Technology, we love it, but it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's a little tricky. Um, such is life. Such is life, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so glad to see you. Again, my name is Rashad. I am on the pastoral staff here at the church. It is good to be with you this Sunday morning. And I just want to remind you as we go through the book of Philippians, no matter where you find yourself this morning um, in joy or going through trials, that this is a joyful letter, that this is a letter that speaks on joy and rejoicing. It's that words, the words, the Greek words for joy and rejoicing are used 16 times in 104 verses. And, and the theme of this book over and recurring over and over again is, is joy. John Piper says this about joy. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. And so that's the prayer this morning that we would see the beauty of Christ in his word and the beauty of Christ in how he is working in our world. Right, even like this morning, though like you're like, ah, it snowed, but then you walk outside in the sunshine, you're like, it's kind of beautiful here. It's kind of nice, right? Like just this moment, just this short window right now, when we get out, it might not feel that way, but just this short moment, and then we're like, it's, it's beautiful, and, and I pray that this morning, as, as we get into the word, that you go like, man, though I may not be feeling it, I see the beauty in how God is orchestrating through my life and through the world and through his word, amen? All right, yeah. So, um, so Paul, though in jail, expresses that joy is not contingent on circumstances, that God can even use chains and hardship and trials to advance the good news, that he can leverage our bad and poor situations for the gospel to advance and go forth into the world. And so Paul, who's, Paul who started this Philippian church, in this, in this letter, he, he shifts from talking about what God is doing in him and the joy this church has brought him and what his chains have brought. He shifts his emphasis in this passage today more towards the Philippian church itself. And he's, 
He's challenging and he's appealing to this church here in this passage. And as I, and I think about it, I think personally, and I said, if, if I thought, I think to myself, if I was removed from my family or my loved ones, and for a noble cause, of course, if I was removed from them, like what would be my message to them? Like what would I want to communicate to them? What would be my biggest concern if I had the possibility of knowing I might not ever be reunited with, with my family or those most closest to me? And this, this is a similar vein in which Paul is writing this letter. And I just think that I would want to communicate. I got four sons that I would communicate to them to, to stick it out. To stick it out in my absence with a tenacity in the face of maybe even suffering. I would, I would long for them not only to stick it out, but to stick it out together in unity. And so our passage, verse 27, Paul says this to this church from his, from his jail cell. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I want us to, to park it on this little phrase real quick. There's a lot, man, there's so much meat in this passage. But let's park it on this phrase, whatever happens. It's kind of one of my favorite phrases, right? Um, it can be used for noble causes or not so noble causes. And don't look at me that way like you've been in church your whole life. Whatever happened, let's go for it. It's New Year's in Vegas. Whatever happens. I'm just... Hey, I ain't always been a Jesus follower, so I... All right, anyways. <laughs> I've had some questionable times even in college. Anyways, I digress. Whatever happens, right? And so um, that phrase, whatever happens, it's, it's a pact. It's something you say before you go into something not knowing what the outcome might be. And it's usually something where the, where the stakes are high, whatever happens. And so I want you to, to remember that Paul is in a federal penitentiary. It's a very different judicial system than here in the West, but though not much, I'm joking. Um, and he's telling this young church, he essentially doesn't know what the outcome will be. He doesn't know the out, what the outcome will be from this prison sentence, so this is why he says, whatever happens. Whatever happens, I, Paul, your pastor, if I get a life sentence, if I get flogged, if I get stoned, if I get crucified, if I get released, regardless of the outcome, do these things. Regardless of the outcome of what happens to me, continue in these things. Here's what's most important. Here's what I long for you. And he says this, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word conduct is a political metaphor. See, he's, he's talking about citizenship. He's saying you are all citizens in the kingdom of God and you're citizens in this Roman colony here in Philippi. And he's saying, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying, we have a civic duty to the place we're at. Not in hiding, not in keeping our faith private, not being apathetic to the things around you. You have a dual citizenship, but you're not to be dualistic. That kingdom values are to show up in the church and in the marketplace. 
One, one commentator says this. He says, the use of this metaphor is a brilliant stroke. Not only does it appeal to their own historic pride as Philippians, but now applied to their present setting, it urges concern both for the mission of the gospel in Philippi and especially for the welfare of the state, meaning in this case that they take seriously their civic responsibilities within the believing community. Their being of one mind and heart is at stake. This harmony will lead to their collective ruin. Paul is saying, whatever happens to me, be the church. Be the church here in Philippi. In Philippi. <laughs> Put on the image of Jesus Christ and bring the good news to your city in every area of life. Be the good news of Jesus Christ to one another as you live in community, as you're living out your faith in this Roman colony. See, there's, there's this word right here, it kind of puts us on the hook. Because you could read this really fast and go conduct yourself, oh, so just be a nice person. But then when it has political implications, it, it puts us on the hook for a lot more and, and, a, and a larger responsibility for the time and place in which we find ourselves. Because I would rather turn off the news. I'd rather miss a community board meeting and do what I got to do and just keep my head down. But when Paul says conduct yourself, he's like, you're here for, for, for such a time as this. Anybody with me? He's saying you have a responsibility to live like Jesus, that your manner of life ought to look like Jesus in, inside and outside of these walls. And so what he's saying is we, we, we're, we have to move beyond just good intention. Well-intended Christians, we have to move into intentionality that I, I live here and I interact and it's intentional the way I do it. It doesn't happen by accident because that's the call and the mission of God for me to get intricately involved in what's going on in the world and join God in what he's doing. I'm trying to preach this thing, all right. Um, see, he, he didn't say to the church, hey, I'm in jail, guys, it's dangerous out there. Keep your head down. Just stay out of the way. Just read your devotion quietly in the bathroom. I'm not against reading your devotion quietly in the bathroom. Hopefully you have a living room or a den, but whatever. <laughs> like, re, like he's saying like, no, this is not a call to safety in a hunker down mentality. You should conduct yourself in the way of Jesus regardless of where you find yourself because this is your mission. He goes on to say, verse, the second half of verse 27, he says, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. I want you to pay attention to the word stand firm. And we see this word um, a couple of times in scripture, and you might be familiar with it in Ephesians 6 where Paul tells the church to put on the full armor of God. And he says, put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, take on the sword of the spirit, the belt of truth, the peace of the gospel over your feet. And after you've done all this, he says, stand. 
He's saying stand firm because guess what? There's a real opposition. There's a real enemy that's coming against the church as comes against the people of God. And at the end of the day, what, you, what God has called you to is to stand firm. Stand firm. After dunning, done all that you can, stand. In the face of opposition, he's telling this Philippian church, stand together. Stand firm together. Hold the line in trusting in God's faithfulness. Hold the line in trusting in God's faithfulness in the face of opposition and uncertainty. Standing firm is the same phrase used when the, the children of Israel were, um, were fleeing from Pharaoh in Egypt and they were at the banks of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is approaching and Moses tells the people of God, stand firm. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of Yahweh. They have an opportunity right now where they could stand firm and, and trust in what God has said and trust in the character of Jesus, of God, or they can turn back because of what they see. They can turn back because of what they see. And they can stand firm and see what God does and pass through the waters, or they can turn and flee because of opposition. See, and, and the, on, the, on the banks of the Red Sea is where we often find ourselves in life. And, the, and I think there's, a, there's, there's believing in God, and then there's believing in God at the banks of the sea with the opportunity to make history. Whatever happens, I'm standing firm. Whatever happens, we are called to stand firm for the mission of Jesus. Church, wherever you find yourself this morning, stand firm. Not only do we stand firm, but Paul is calling the church to contend. The word contend is translated here, striving together. He says, striving together as one, in verse 27, for the faith of the gospel. So, we, so I, I know when some of us, including me, hear that word contend, I, you think of billboard signs, Christian billboard signs and rallies and mean-spirited signs in front of pregnancy clinics. That, that, that's not what Paul is saying when you talk about contend. Paul says contend in a manner worthy of the kingdom. Tell the truth in love, love overcoming evil, light shining in darkness, walk, uh, walking the extra mile, turning cheeks, being clothed in humility. Sermon on the Mount, way of Jesus. He's saying contend in being a people of love. We are not contending for political parties. We're not contending for denominations. We're not contending for more stuff. We're contending for the breaking in of the kingdom of God into our world. We're contending, and this is political, because you know what, because we're saying Jesus is Lord. We're, not, we're saying Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. This is political because the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here and it's breaking in. And we have to contend together because we're in a joint struggle. 
This is, we're not called to some rogue solo act. We're called to contend in unison. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit pulls the people of God together in unison and unites hearts for God's mission. This striving, it's a strive together. It's a sporting term. It's a, it's a word used in athletics, and I just think of football being deeply entrenched and locked arms in together to advance love. You thought you were just coming for coffee and bagels today. <laughs> no, we got, a real, we, we got some real things to do in this world. We got some real things to do in our time here on earth. And Paul is saying, listen, this is real. I'm in chains. You guys need to lock arms in unity and push back the darkness by your love. It reminds me of the freedom fighters who walked from Selma to Montgomery they, they knew the cost. They knew that they would experience opposition. They knew that it wouldn't be a popular movement. They locked arms and walked. Martin Luther King said in his letter from a Birmingham jail, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. See, when you, when you have that vision that we are in this together and our destinies are tied to one another because God has called us to be the church and not fragmented pieces all over the place, but to have one heart, mind, and spirit together, locking arms, contending together for advancement of love and joy in the world. And the call is not to shrink back when opposition comes because opposition will come. But the cause outweighs the cost. And that's, that's what Dr. Martin Luther King knew, that, that the value, that the glory that would come outweighs the suffering and the persecution that might be, might be that was experienced. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. And Paul is saying, do not be intimidated or back down. Be courageous. Be a courageous people. Together, be a courageous community. Do not be frightened. That word, frightened, is translated sometimes to refer, this is funny, to spooking horses. Who does that? That's messed up. Um, it's, a, it's a term that's used to, to spook horses. Um, and it probably, one definition says that it probably carries a nuance of, of being intimidated or be thrown into consternation, being thrown into anxiety, being thrown into a panic. And you say, don't get thrown into a panic when you see this opposition. I, I often get more frightened when I don't expect something to come. When, I don't ex when, when I'm, I'm living in a way where I think nothing bad 
can happen. I like to live that way. Anyways, um, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> um, and I think people get more frightened when they don't think anything bad should happen. When they think that what they're doing doesn't deserve anything bad to happen. And C.S. Lewis wrote about courage, that courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. As Jesus followers, it's clear, we're going to be tested. We're going to be tested to live out the way of Jesus. And here's, here's the truth that our opposition wants us to run. Our opposition wants us to live in fear and be cowardly and be cowardly in the way that we live out the way of Jesus in the world. And to advance the gospel will take everyone operating from a place of courage. It's going to take this community to operate from a place of courage in the face of opposition together. Paul reminds them what it means to follow Jesus, and it's, it's not popular. He says it's, there's suffering that comes with it. And that's not a part to amen. <laughs> that's tough. But it might be. He says in verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer with him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I have, still have. See, we all have some formed idea or formed thought about how God should operate. And those, those beliefs shape, shape our experience and what we believe about suffering most likely shapes how we respond to suffering. And the way that it's worded here is that, is that you get to. That you, you, you get to suffer for him. One commentator says this, but here the apostle challenges the Philippians theology and asks them to understand their afflictions not merely as inevitable, but as a manifestation of God's gracious dealing with them. In a mysterious way, we get to suffer with Jesus because suffering is the path to glory. Read with me in Romans 8. It says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. And so we have a, a vision of something grander that's coming in the midst of whatever we go through because we know that we are contending and striving for something much greater than ourselves that's going to be for the flourishing of humanity in our world. I think we are prone, I think I'm prone to reject the suffer with him because I've, I've been taught and many of us have been taught that struggle is an indication of God's absence. And Paul is saying, actually, this struggle that you're experiencing is a sign of God's activity. This is why God calls you to put on the armor because you are doing his work. You are in the lines. You are in the trenches and you are experiencing opposition because you are carrying forth the good news of Jesus Christ in a conflict zone, 
in a contested space. And darkness is being overcome as you speak. And nothing that we go through is outside of God's sovereignty. Henry Nouwen says this about suffering. He says, the deep truth is that our human suffering need not to be an obstacle to the joy and peace we so desire, but can become instead the means to it. The great secret of the spiritual life, the life of the beloved sons and daughters of God, is that everything we live, be it gladness or sadness, joy or pain, health or illness, can all be part of the journey toward the full realization of our humanity. Real care means the willingness to help each other in making our brokenness into the gateway to joy. And Paul's call to the church is that unity. And that unity as we do this together is the gateway to joy that we can go through anything because of Jesus. So therefore... Chapter two, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the spirit and one and of one mind. Unity is the longing of the father. Where we're united in our conduct, and standing firm, and striving, and courage, and suffering, and we're united in our love for one another. And a lot of, a lot of preachers, and even a lot of commentaries, like divide chapter two from chapter one, and I just want you to pay attention, and I'm not an English major, but there's a therefore there. There's a therefore, and the therefore implies that he's expanding on his exhortation from, from verse 27 of being of one spirit and one mind. He says, so th- being one spirit and, there, and one mind, therefore, if. And all those, if there's any encouragement, if any comfort, if any common sharing, can be translated with the word sense. Because these are realities. The reality is, regardless of how you feel right now, you're united in Christ. Regardless of how you feel right now, there's a a comfort from the love of God towards you right now. There's tenderness and compassion from the heart of Jesus available to you right now. That's a reality. So it's a rhetorical question because the goal of of this passage, the, the goal of what Jesus has put out is for us to be one. The goal of oneness, the, the aim is, is, is unity. And that's different from sameness. That we're all linked together on this mission on, that we've all been transformed by, by the person of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, for we were all baptized by one spirit. So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Like, I'm, this is not in my notes, but listen, racial reconciliation wasn't something created just right now. Like, like the passage is here saying, like, God has 
pouring down the wall of separation between the haves and the have-nots, between Jews and Gentiles, between slave and free. We've all been called to drink from the same spirit that unites us. And so, to me, revival is those walls being broken down and people from all walks of life together locked arms in the mission of God, giving glory to Jesus Christ. This is the arc of Paul's appeal, being one in the spirit and of the mind for the sake of Christ. The power of the gospel is uniting people from all walks of life and circumstances around the person of Jesus. And Paul found it necessary to highlight unity because opposition will present itself in the most cozy of, cozy of, cozy of communities. Opposition will find itself in the most grandest of churches. Opposition will come the minute that you say, I'm going to do something worthy of the gospel. The goal of the enemy is to steal, steal, kill, and destroy, to dismantle what God has put together. But Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, mission is to build and unite. So Paul's saying, don't let anything come between you. Don't let friction erode your love for one another. It's been a faithful, beautiful work that God has done in Philippi so much so that Paul says that he's experienced joy for, even from his jail cell and he, he's appealed to them and says, make my joy complete. He's saying my joy is at, is at the brim. So it's more than this. It's at the brim. He says, keep going. Contend with one another. Lock arms and then my joy will be overflowing. When you pass, when you go through the test, last part of verse of chapter of, of our of our passage, do not do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Could you imagine being in a world like this? where people are surrendered to serving others first. Not on, not on the side, as part of like the work, community service hours. Like, like this is like their mission. Like, my, like their mission to put others first. Could you imagine a world like that? Where the needs and concerns of others surpass our own for no other motivation than love and God's glory. says do, do nothing out of selfish ambition. S selfish ambition in a nutshell is empty glory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. There's no glory given to God there. And he says rather, so it, it implies ambition is not bad. Ambition needs to be directed at the right thing. Shift, pivot your ambition towards your neighbor, towards your sisters, towards your brothers first. This is a pretty ambitious city, right? 
Some, somebody, somebody moved here, right? He has some kind of ambition, right? This is a, I'm, 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 being, I'm joking. Um, this, is, this is an ambitious city. Imagine if the ambition of the city was bent towards human flourishing and the glory of God. Imagine if the ambition of the university was bent completely towards human flourishing first. Not to get a grant, but first because it's deeply embedded out of the heart that's been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine living in a place like that. See, the, one commentator says this, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Ouch. In the midst of friction and uncertainty and, and division, what the Spirit wants to do in the midst of that is work in our hearts the love of Jesus. These frictions, these oppositions, these divisions are our opportunity for us to allow God and the Holy Spirit to say, man, what's that in me that wants to fight back? What's that in me that wants to put myself first? And when we slow down and pay attention, say, God, what are you saying to me about this, that, about this person that just cut me off on, on Boylston Street, right? Right, what is that in me that wants to reject and push back? What's that in me that's like, man, I don't even like that Martin Luther King quote in church right now. What's that in me that's responding, repelling against that? This is an opportunity I think the Holy Spirit is saying to his church to allow the love of God to seep in so that you can love out of a posture of Jesus. Conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel of Jesus. N.T. Wright says this, and we're, and we're gonna like go down to the runway. Jesus is, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That's after, that's after all is what the Lord's prayer is about. God is not trying to snatch us up and put us in a bunker. God is saying, I'm going to feel you so you can turn around and express that same love to those around you. I'm going to colonize earth with heaven. I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes ever. Um, because God's love is a catalyst for our unity. It's where we build our lives around for the sake of the world because our, our unity is our collective witness to our world and to our city. And our collective unity brings so much joy to the Father. I'll close with this. Psalm 133 says this. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Aaron was anointed by God in, 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 in um, Exodus, and it says that the oil came down his beard and on to his clothing, and he wore a breastplate that had all the stones that represented all the tribes, and the oil covered all of the tribes. 
to show the unity only happens and can happen through the Spirit. See, this is not just a novel idea, and sometimes the words like unity get hijacked by our world and by organizations, and the unity that God is talking about is us living as brothers and sisters for the flourishing of one another first. And when I think about my first question of if I was separated from my family, what would I want? I would want my family to be so tightly knit and love one another and stick it out with one another no matter what. The worst feeling that I get in the pit of my stomach is when I see my kids viciously fight with one another and act like they're not blood relatives. And Paul, from a prison cell, is saying, Live like you've been ransomed. Live like you've been adopted. Live like Jesus Christ has really saved your life and pulled you out of the pit and resurrected your body and your life and has a future for you. Bathe in glory. Live like that amongst one another on your time here on earth as a vapor. Live that way with one another. Live that way in society. Stop repelling the things that are going on around you. Get deep down into it and pour out the love of God in your world. So whatever happens, stand firm, contend, strive together courageously in the face of suffering in unity for the glory of God and to advance the joy of the kingdom in our world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you, you're so...